So, all right, so let's move on with the message. We're in the series called Home for Christmas. And last week we talked about the fact that um, Jesus left home so we could come home. And we're going to take a look at that a little farther this week. If you have your Bibles, get them ready to be open because we're going to go traipsing through all kinds of passages this morning to have you take a look at what I think are some of the critical points of Christmas as we're going to look at it. But the title of the message this week is Jesus Wants Us Home. Right? And when you think about... All that Jesus has done, the question when it comes to Christmas, and I'm looking at this scene, and so many of us get just absolutely captivated by this picture. The point behind it is that Jesus wants us home. And what we said last week is that he left home so we could come home. There are some huge hints when you read. You don't have to go very far. There's some huge hints in Scripture that this is not an ordinary child, that this is not just... uh, a unique person, uh, a person who was highly motivated and, for example, uh, grew up and, and desired to become uh, a senator or a, a star athlete or a president of the United States or a CEO of a corporation. This is something even beyond that when we look at Jesus. If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, take a look there. Uh, for some of you, it'll be your phone. That's fine. But when we look at these verses, what I want to remind you is we look at these verses as they were penned. This is 700 years before Jesus showed up. Right? So just in case, uh, as you're looking at history right now and you're rattled by history right now, I just want to give you the affirming fact that God has a good handle on history. He has it mapped out long before and way better than we possibly could. And so these verses on Isaiah talk about the uniqueness of this particular child. It says this, and they're famous, you know them well, they're sung in song. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice those titles. Have any of you named your children that? Right? Those are not names that you give to a kid, right? There's something going on here that's way beyond the birth of a child. These are titles of royalty. These are God titles. These are not for a human. And they point to this whole setting. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. Isaiah was introducing a theme that was all the way through the Old Testament. That theme was God was going to provide a Savior. Started with Abraham, a seed. And then from Moses, God will raise up a prophet like you. And then all the way through the prophets, talking about the Messiah would come. And they were talking about some that would be, someone who would be very unique. If you go to Matthew's account now and go to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew also points out the same uniqueness in this particular child. Matthew chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Hard to read that without hearing Linus' voice, right? (laughs) When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In the first service uh, this morning, um, many of you know Haley Downs. She helps uh, serve on the worship team. And uh, her fiancé, Isaac Stott, 
uh, came in this weekend and she didn't know he was here and he came to ask her if she would marry him. All right. So they got just engaged and we applauded them. So if you see Haley, you can hug on her. Margaret and Jeff are being back there beaming. Uh, this is a good thing. Uh, but if Haley said, oh, by the way, Isaac, I'm pregnant. Not a big deal, but just thought I'd let you know before we get married. Okay. How well would that go over? Not very well, right? Now, the thing that we lose in our culture is that in our day and age, that's not that big a deal. Oh, well, whatever, you know. Uh, in Wisconsin, we had the same first one. First one um, can come whenever. The next one takes nine months, all right? And, uh, and the idea there was that a lot of people got married out of wedlock, right? And it wasn't that big a deal. But in Jesus' time, it was a really big deal, really big deal. That to the point where the, it could even involve capital punishment for the gal that was involved in that. So we're not talking about an easy situation here. We're talking, and plus if you take it from the guy's side, absolute bafflement. Now what do I do? My, my whole, I, there's no good solution to this thing. I've wrung myself silly. I can't think of a good way out. It says before... They had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, means he was a good man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say this, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, two distinct things. There's so many things you can pull from this. We've heard lots of messages on this in the past, but two things to point out to always keep in mind. Number one, the Bible pointedly states that Jesus did not have a human father. That is orthodox Christian teaching. In other words, if you want to know what the church at large teaches, regardless of what brand we are uh, or what branch we are, it teaches that Jesus was born from a virgin birth, born by the Holy Spirit, Mary was overshadowed, it says, by the Holy Spirit and found to be with child before she and Joseph had been intimate together. And therefore, Jesus is distinctly different from any other human that has been born. And the Orthodox Christian position on this has never changed. Uh, If you read uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, it's one of the big points that he makes in that book is that this is one of the foundational concrete places of Christian theology. The second one is notice the names again. Uh, in Isaiah, we saw these names that were pretty amazing given to a baby. In Matthew, you have the same thing. Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, when we look and we go back to this scene, what are we looking at here? We're talking about the fact that God has joined us. We didn't have to go to God. He came to us. This is God on our turf. God is intimate. God is present. God is coming to rescue. This is the greatest rescue operation 
in the history of the world right here. The name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. That was the reason and the purpose he did it. Now, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. The book of Philippians fleshes this out, no pun intended, right? Even further. You didn't get that? Fleshes, okay, sorry. Incarnation, all right. Philippians 2 reads like this. It says, oops, let me get there. There we go. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the idea there was don't be selfish and don't be full of pride. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What Philippians lets us know is that Jesus was God. And that it says he did not hold that as something to be hung on to. Now think about how tightly we grasp onto things. And think about the kind of things that Jesus had to hold on to. And think about the heart attitude that says, I'm willing to let that go because I think the assignment needs to be done. Philippians tells us that this was an incredible process, that he humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men. Can you imagine the options, the privileges, the ability, if you're God, and you set that aside and become like us? How limiting would that be? In some sense, that would almost feel like the ultimate straitjacket, wouldn't it? Because you can't do any of the things you used to do. And yet you have to operate in that form. Because it was the only way to get the point across. So the Orthodox Christian position here, when we're talking about Orthodox Christian position, what are we talking about? We're talking about what has the church always held and taught. All right? What it's saying here, the, the theological term here, what it's trying to get across here in Scripture, the theological term is hypostatic union. Right? You can look it up, Google it, hypostatic union. And uh, it's, a, it's a term we don't often use. Um, the term we would use that we would understand is it's held in tension together. Right? Hypostatic. It's held in tension together. Uh, hypotasis is two complete and distinct natures united in one person. So theologically what we're saying here is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Okay? Both natures are together. And so in other words, Jesus wasn't half God and half man, and you bring it together and that brings 100%. Jesus wasn't a great teacher. Jesus wasn't just a spirit that floated around. That's all the different controversies of the early church. That's Gnosticism and Nestorianism and Manchurianism and all those different things like that. What it's saying is that Jesus was uniquely God and uniquely man, and that was held in tension in the person of the person we know as Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. Jesus is the God-man. He uses the terms interchangeably, son of God, son of man. If you go through the New Testament, you pick those up 
all the time. This unique combination also set in motion something else that is unique about Jesus that's different from us. He didn't have a sin nature. Because he didn't have a human father, didn't come down through the Adamic line and the curse that comes down through the Adamic line that we all get to pick up. Whoopee, yep, yeah, right? Um, Jesus did not have a sin nature. And so Jesus was uniquely positioned to be the Savior of the world. The book of Hebrews has one of the best distillations of this doctrine and its implications. If you take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I'll flip it up on the screen here while you're turning there. Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. Now, Hebrews throws something in there we hadn't considered before. This baby that we so worship and get excited about on Christmas it says this baby was the creator of the very planet he came to. In other words, the creator came to visit the creation, came to check it out, came to see what kind of shape it was, came to rescue it. And Hebrews says here, he's been appointed heir of all things. Now, If we keep reading, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus says this many times. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How could he say that? Because Scripture says he's an exact imprint, okay, an exact replication. Like looking, we would say, like looking in a mirror. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purifications for sins, i.e. where he died on the cross for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty and high heaven, become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, there is no other name in the universe like the name of Jesus. And rather than a curse word, it should be a word that when we hear his name, we fall on our knees. It is the ultimate name in the universe. John fleshes this out in John chapter 1, if you turn there and follow. uh, talks about how this incarnation happened. It says, in the beginning, very famous, very famous words, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Logos of God. This Word that came to manifest itself to mankind. This Logos. And it says that He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything that was made. We did a presentation here in church a while back and talked about how um, scientists are and mathematicians are going through the universe and they've now uh, got it down to what is called string theory and they're talking about 12 different type of realities that exist or um, what we call dimensions, right? And what they say is unique about it is that it's mathematical and it's harmonic. It's musical, Okay. The universe is music. You wonder why we love music? You wonder why it hits such a note with us that just speaking can't? You wonder, it's the fingerprint of God. And the guy who put that all together, the guy who put that entire system together is this person we're talking about here. Without him was not anything that has been made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's this baby we're talking about. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, what is God like? God is full of grace and he's full of truth. That's who we're dealing with here. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For law, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who has seen God? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. God coming to our turf. And that's why Jesus would go on later to say about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Right? He had no qualms about saying that about himself. Peter in, at Pentecost preached this. Repent therefore and turn back. This is Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Christ is a Greek word for a Hebrew word, Messiah. Right? And so the Christ or the Messiah, we now say Jesus Christ like that's his name, Steve Mitchells. It's become that. But initially it was a term describing the role he would fulfill. He would be the Christ or the Savior. He would be the Savior of all mankind. That's this baby that we're talking about at Christmas. It says, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then in Acts 4, he says this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, this is God's rescue mission. This is God's rescue attempt. And it's come in the name of this person that we call Jesus. Now, what are we trying to say here? Why emphasize this so strong? What's the predicament we find ourselves with? And what is Christmas all about? Well, the predicament we find ourselves is much like this picture right here. Uh, many of you have been here. This is a view from the Grand Canyon. Um, I forget which exact outlook it is. I've been there before. Um, but this is a view from the south rim towards the north rim of the Grand Canyon. How many have been there? Seen this picture before, right? You've been there? Yeah. Stood there, look. When you stand at that point, the distance is mind-boggling as you look at it. Your head actually can't really wrap around the distances because you're looking and something, it's just overwhelming. Pictures don't do it justice. When you stand there in real life, it is astonishingly big and far and like, how did this happen? And the predicament we find ourselves in is from where you stand on the south rim right here, if you look across at this viewpoint juncture right here, it's roughly five and a half to six and a half miles across, depending on where you try to land over there. All right? So it's five and a half, six miles across. On top of that, when you're looking from the south rim, the thing that you have to factor in is that the north rim is 1,200 feet higher than the south rim. All right? So it's not a straight across jump. So to be saved by your own merits, to be saved by your good works, is the equivalent of you trying to earn God's approval, is the equivalent of standing at that vantage point. We'll even give you that tippy, tippy outer rock there, right? We'll give you that tippy outer rock. You can go as far out as there. Is to jump from that rock 
And you're not just having to jump across, you're having to jump up 1,200 feet. What are the odds that you or any other human on this planet is going to make that jump? All right, at that point, when you suddenly realize you have to get across and there's absolutely no way for you to cross that gap, you cannot do it. And you make one stumble and the fall down below, if you've ever looked down the Grand Canyon, is terrifying. That's a long way down, baby. Right? This picture doesn't do it justice. A, a certain panic, a certain desperation comes in the heart because you know where you have to go and you can't get there. And that's what we're, we're trying to look at because uh, it gets only exacerbated by our own attempts. There's an illustration called the bridge illustration. And it looks like this. This is the gap, right? We're looking across and we're trying to figure out how do I make that jump? We can't bridge that gap. Scripture says our iniquities, our sin, our attitudes, thoughts, motives in our heart have separated us from God. That's in Isaiah 59. And the older you get, the more desperate that situation becomes because you start to realize we've left a long trail behind us. We thought we were doing great, and then you look back in hindsight and go, man, I was not doing that good. And it only gets exacerbated by our attempts to earn our way to heaven. Uh, We very, very soon realize all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That we can't make it. It doesn't matter some of us are better than others or accomplished more than others or been gooder than others. Is gooder a word? It is now, all right? That's like thicker, right? It's gooder. It doesn't matter because none of us can clear the gap. It all falls into the pit. Our righteousness is polluted. Uh, Isaiah would say it's like filthy rags. And we're cut off. Ephesians would tell us in chapter 2, it's like we're without God, but worse, without hope. We've lost, so there's no way across that chasm. I can never close it. I can never make that gap come back. And what we're trying to say this morning is this is what Christmas is saying. God saw the predicament, and because of his great love, he came to us. He spanned the gap, the only one who could. He was looking on, if you take... Uh, the picture a little further, the south rim is planet Earth and the north rim is heaven. He was looking from 1,200 feet up and looked and saw our predicament and said, you know what? They are in desperate trouble. There's absolutely no way for them to get here. I'm going to have to go get them. And that's what he did. He came to get us. Why do we get so excited about Christmas? Because it's the greatest season of hope in the world. Why? Because it says that God came to find us. He knew we were lost. He came to rescue us. And he jumped the divide for us. The only one able to cross over, crossed over. What was impossible for us was possible for him. Jesus left home so we could come home. There was a purpose to it. He didn't just want to come over and see how it was going. He wanted to take us back with him. He wanted us to be in the fold, in the family. And so Jesus left home so we could come home. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King.
Right? That's what this is. Now you say, well, what do I have to do? Well, what it says is, then you have to respond reciprocally. All relationships are reciprocal. You ever tried to date somebody who didn't want to date you? How far does that go? Not very far, right? It's got to be a two-way street. It's got to be reciprocal. And if an invitation to relationship is extended, then invitation to relationship must be accepted. It has to be a two-way street. Romans 10 says this. For we know the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ. In other words, how are we going to get him here? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Because he's not dead anymore. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Romans 1 says that the law of God is written on our heart. We know. People know. It's written on our heart. So we don't have to say, where is it? The word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What scripture simply saying there? You talk about what you're into. You talk about what you like. You talk about what you're happy about. You talk, if somebody's rescued, you tell that story. Right? Because we talk about what's important to us. And Scripture says if you handle this important issue and you say, I by faith believe Jesus crossed that gap for me. I can't get over there, but he can cross it for me. And in faith, I'm going to accept that offer. Then it says, you don't have to go way out. It's right here by him. And it also says this. For Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call for him, all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so what it's pointing out is that we're in this desperate predicament and we know we can't jump the gap. And it says that all of a sudden when God comes across, he comes to us. He rescues us. It says, when you recognize you have to make that transaction, you say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I can't get there on my own merits. I can't be good enough. I can't do good enough. I can't think well enough. I need help. I need you to save me. When you make that confession of faith, anybody who calls out to God that way will never be shamed. That's one of the greatest things about God. He doesn't shame people. He invites people. When we come to Christmas... Why do we get so excited? It's an invitation to the greatest party in the history of the universe. Do you want to go? That's the question. You say, Steve, that was kind of a dorky illustration, those little stick figures and men. Why'd you use that? That's an old navigator illustration. John Templin will be here in third service. He'll light up because he's a nav. You know, that, that dorky illustration led my nephew and his wife to the Lord this year. And when we went home on our family reunion, and it chokes me up because he was the ring bearer at our wedding. Very cool. He said, yeah, Steve, this guy drew this stick figure diagram on a napkin. He said, I had never heard any of that. I had never thought any of that. He said, but when he drew it out, I knew it was true. And he said, we, we gave our lives to the Lord right there on the spot. And guess what? He wasn't shamed. 
So the invitation this morning is, is there anybody who needs to call out the Lord this morning? Right? I know most of us pretty well, but I also know I've been around long enough to know you never know where people are when they walk in that door. So would you join me in prayer this morning? I want to give an opportunity for those. This is an actual call to invite Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior. If what I've been saying this morning has rung true, if those scriptures made sense, if you heard not Steve, but you heard the Lord talking to you, and don't worry about the noise, that's just the band coming up. And it made sense. And in your heart you're going, you know what? I cannot bridge that gap. I know it. You may not be old. You may be young. And you're going, I've lived enough already to know I can't bridge that gap. I can't be good enough. I need somebody to help make me good because I'm not good in my heart. Then you call out to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, that gap, I'm stuck on the other side. I need you to come and rescue me. I need you to forgive me of my sin. And I'm asking if you do that, and I'm asking you into my life, I will give up the control. I will give up the authority. I will give up the ownership of my life to you because you are worthy because you're the only person who died for me so that that could be covered. Everybody stop for a second. Without looking around, please, for the sake of privacy, is there anybody here this morning that said that to Jesus? Just raise your hand up. Let me see. Anybody at all? If not, that's really good because that means we've all done that earlier. All right, would you look up? Thank you. Where does this take us? Why did he come across? Well, here's where this takes us. 2 Corinthians, whoops. 2 Corinthians is a passage that is usually used at funerals. Uh, I've done a lot of funerals, a couple hundred, and uh, I've used this passage almost to the point where I have it memorized. But it talks about something, and it talks about the hope that comes at Christmas when it's at the end of the line, not at the beginning of the line. It says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, i.e. he's talking about when you die, you're all going to, right? Know that? Some of us sooner than others. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, if you're over 40, more so than others, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found, not found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan and are burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. And here's one of the most incredible phrases in the entire Bible. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It doesn't say swallowed up by death. It says swallowed up by life. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and you surrender to him, and you obediently and faithfully, to the best of your ability, follow his lead through your life, when you die, you're not getting swallowed up by death. You're getting swallowed up by life. Life, eternal life. Life in the heavens where we've never been. That's what this is saying right here. It says, we will be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
Do we have the full package deal yet? No. What Scripture says is God's given us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit tells us and whispers to us and talks to us and says, hang in there. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know it's long. I know you're 17. You'll make it. All right? Hang in there. I have something for you. And I put a deposit as a guarantee, which means your ticket's been punched. Not by what you've done, but by what he's done for you. Why is this so important? Because that's why he came. He left home so we could come home. And he wants us home. He desperately wants us home with him. Home with him, with his father, dwelling with and within his spirit. Joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has come. We're going to sing a worship song right now that just, it's not a Christmas song, but it meshes with this so well. Would you stand and let's worship this Jesus this morning.